Y'all feel, y'all feel God in here? Like, there's some nights where I'm just like, I'll just put this down. I'll, I don't need to say anything. And we'll, we'll all just kind of like rest in this moment. Um, yeah, I feel like tonight's going to be special. Um, not because of me or a message that God's given me. Um, but I just feel like whenever you encounter Jesus, like it's always going to be special, you know? Jesus never encountered somebody and they left the same um, as when they encountered him. There's always a change, um, always something different. Jesus marks us. Um, He always marks us. You can't encounter Jesus without leaving different, without leaving marked by his presence, by his goodness, even if you don't believe in him. And I'm well aware that I give this little spiel, but I just think it's so, so perfect for this moment that there are probably a lot of people in this room that don't think the way that I think, that don't see the world the way that I see the world, that maybe you even come with a different faith background or perspective. Um, And my goal tonight isn't to convince you to believe my way, to win you necessarily to the way I think or act. Um, But I'll be honest and upfront, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he was the most incredible person give it up for Jesus. He was the most incredible person to walk the face of the earth, and I believe that he was even more of a person, more than a person, that he was God in the flesh, come to make a way for us to have a reconciled relationship with the Father. And I know that's like a big statement, that you believe there was a guy who was on the earth, but he was also God, like that's a lot to process, and I know that is. And so here's my challenge to you if you've come in, and maybe this is your first time at church, first off, thank you. Um, It takes a lot of bravery to step into a room that you're unfamiliar with or uncomfortable with. But I just want you to relax and consider. This is all I want you to do is maybe consider for the first time that what I'm saying is true and that Jesus is real and that he loves you and that he has a plan for you and he, he just cares about you. And he wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And so we're gonna jump in tonight. Maybe as you're taking a seat, look at your neighbor. Um, tell them they look good, even with their mask on. Maybe their mask helps them look good, you know? Like Andrew said, we have got a snowstorm coming. Anybody in here like snow, like you love snow? You guys can leave. Anybody like me, you like the first snow of the year, and you're like, it's amazing, especially if it's on like a Saturday or something, and then you're like, I'm done with this for the rest of the year. One snow, it melts, it's good. I need to move somewhere that is warm. Um, Well, hey, if it's your first time here, my name is Connor. I'm one of the young adult pastors. Um, And man, it's just a privilege to be able to hang out with you, um, to talk to you guys, to share my heart with you, and to help build this community of faith um, that God's building. I feel so much a part of you. I know sometimes because of a stage and a mic, it can feel like I'm here to teach you, but I, I feel like God teaches us together when we come together on a Thursday night. And so we're just closing up a series called Follow Me. And um, last week, George Towers crushed it. Anybody here for George? Amazing. We're wrapped up our series, Follow Me, and um, Easter, which is the biggest holiday of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, literally validating and solidifying everything that Jesus said and did. He called his shot, said he was going to be crucified, and on the third day raised to life, and he did it. And Easter is coming up. It's the first Sunday in April, and we thought, what a better way to sort of prepare our minds and our hearts and our thoughts um, than kind of looking at the moments 
in Jesus's life leading up to that point. The moments, the 24 to 48 hours of Jesus's life leading up to the cross and the resurrection that would change the world forever. And so we're jumping into a new series called The Moment, The Moments Before the Miracle. And over the next couple weeks, we're going to be examining some of the most critical moments leading up to the cross and leading up to the resurrection. And so I'm excited to jump in. Um, if you have your Bible, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, anybody have a Bible, old school? Heather, you better have the Bible that I gave you a week or two ago. Um, if not, you're dead to me. Um, <laughs> no, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, if you have a Bible, brownie points. If not, it'll be up on the screen. We're going to start in verse 23. It says this. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For when you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. It's getting creepy here, but just hang on. Everybody ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. And that's not a good nap sleep. That's like your dead sleep. Um, but if we were more discerning with regards to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. And so the title of my message and sort of the first moment we're going to look at tonight is the Last Supper. And the title of my message is this. It's called The Table. The Table. Can we pray? And then we're going to jump in. Father God, thank you so much that we have an opportunity to come together and to remember you. Um, but not only just remember you, but to feel you, to experience you, to be in your actual presence. You say that when two or three are gathered, you're here. And so God, we're not just doing this as some religious act or practice. We actually believe that the spirit of the living God comes in this room and meets with his people, that he breathes life into his people, that he breathes revelation and prophecy and healing to his people. And so God, this isn't just a song and dance. This is an encounter with the living God that can change lives and rearrange hearts and heal depression and anxiety and loneliness. God, we expect from you because we're meeting with you. And we just pray that you would just do above and beyond all we could ever ask or imagine. It's in Jesus' name, the resurrected King Jesus, that we pray. And everybody said, amen and amen. All right, I want to go back to the scripture that we just read a minute ago about communion. In this uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is instructing the church in Corinth about sort of the right and wrong ways to take communion. If you know anything about the Bible, anything about the Church of Corinth, they pretty much kind of wrote the book on all things what not to do. Um, they had some trouble. And so Paul writes two letters to them. If you get two letters in the Bible, you've really got some problems. And so, um, but on this one specifically, he's talking about communion. And he says this statement uh, as we kind of open the scripture. He said, on the night Jesus was betrayed, now, what Paul is referring to in this moment is a dinner. It's a dinner that's recorded in all four Gospels, and the Gospels are just a fancy way of, of saying eyewitness accounts. The word gospel technically means good news, but the four Gospels in the Bible are just these eyewitness accounts to the life, the teachings, the miracles of Jesus. 
And so Paul is writing in reference to this dinner that takes place moments before Jesus is betrayed, crucified, and a few days later resurrected. And the dinner, we know it as the Last Supper. It's a big dinner with um, an entire family coming together and celebrating. It's actually the Jewish Passover um, festival. And so this dinner that Jesus had with his disciples was the Passover festival, and it was the Jewish celebration. It's the biggest Jewish festival on the calendar. And it was the celebration of when God led them out of Egypt, when the angel passed over the homes of Israel and Egypt with anybody that had the blood of the lamb, um, a slain lamb over their house. Kind of creepy sounding, but very symbolic of what Jesus is about to do here. And so it's the Passover festival. And um, if any of you come from a big family, you know that with big families come big family dinners. Anybody come from a big family? All right. With big families come these big family dinners. Now, I grew up in Northern Virginia uh, with a really big family, kind of right on the border of Washington, D.C., uh, suburbs meets Virginia rural farmland. And so my family dinners, there would be about 30 people plus. I remember one time, I'm not even kidding, I think we had over 50 people at my grandma's house for Christmas because my grandma's like one of those old school church saints that like invites everybody. And as long as you bring a, a covered dish, anybody here know what a covered dish is? Literally a dish that is covered, but it's normally like some type of butter, like flour, you know, whatever, like fat and carbs, like no, nothing redeemable about a covered dish. But we would have like up to 30 people at our house. And so our dinner table at Easter, Christmas, Thanksgiving, it's this weird blend of Washington, D.C. meets farmer, like weird blend of like government agents, um, very real in my family, meets farm people. And um, ask my wife, no lie, one of the first times that we uh, were over, I brought Aaron over for a Thanksgiving, my aunt pulls out her phone to show Aaron her prize heifer that she accidentally just killed. Um, no lie, hopefully no PETA people in here. But, um, and then like as that's going on, my sister is like practicing up on her Russian because she speaks fluent Russian for some FBI job that she does with the government. I'm not even kidding. Um, and then like, you know, at, at my house, when you come over for dinner, techni technically my grandma's, you'll see like a bunch of solo cups. And if you just poured like some Coke or Diet Coke or something in your cup, you just need to be careful because there's like a nine times out of 10 chance that that cup was poured out and replaced with chewing tobacco spit. Um, yeah. So just make sure you like smell it a little bit before you, before you drink it. But yeah, at, at my family dinners, there's like these weird like vibes of like government meets farmer meets, you know, sometimes I'm like, am I the only normal person in this family? Like it doesn't care about either one of those things, but like with family dinners, there can be awkwardness, right? Anybody ever have like an awkward family dinner before? There's like tension at family dinners, like you know, the ants who are feuding over who has the nicer car or like who is more suburban. Like there's like there's like an old grudge that like resurfaces at family dinners. There's like a colliding, this is a great one, colliding political opinions, especially in my family. Everybody knows how to run the government better than the people running the government. And so, you know, political opinions are always the best at family dinners. Then sometimes you get blessed with the opportunity to have the new boyfriend or the new girlfriend. Yes, anybody know what that's like? And my family were pretty nice to the girlfriends, um, but the boyfriends, you will go through the ringer. Like, 
if you sit back and you're too passive, you're not much of a protector. If you're a loud mouth, we're going to have to give you a swirly sometime after dessert. Like, there's just this weird, awkward, I wish. There might be some people in my family I want to give a swirly to. Who knows? But, but sometimes dinner tables can be awkward and uncomfortable, right? Like, they can be this beautiful celebration. There can be a ton of joy. There can be a ton of fun, a ton of food. But then there's moments where, like, the dinner table can be one of the most awkward, tension-filled, like, situations. And I think sometimes when we approach stories like this in the Bible— we kind of know the weight or we know the symbolism or we know the implications of the moment. And so we tend to look at these stories with this romanticized view. We tend to look at these stories with this like holy lens on them. But I think uh, if, if, we're, if we're honest, a lot of the stories that we read in the Bible are, are a lot more relatable than we give them credit for. Like think of the Last Supper. Just when I say the phrase Last Supper, for most of us, there's this like holy reverence that sort of like comes to mind. Like for, for most of us, when I say the Last Supper, we got a picture of it that's going to show up here in a minute. Um, we see a picture of Jesus who's very pale, um, hasn't been outside in a while. Even though these are Jewish men, like Mediterranean men, they're all almost translucently white. Except for the guy on the far right. I don't know who that guy is. Um, but... But, but when we hear things like the Last Supper or moments like this, there's this, there's this reverence that comes up that almost feels like this painting, like this holier-than-thou moment that, that everything just must have been perfect and God must have just been present and Jesus was claiming, I don't know, seats beside of him or something. Like There was just, like, just this other than that we could never be a part of, Right? That way, that's kind of the lens we sort of read this through. But I think if we're honest, as Paul's talking about this story where Jesus is ushering in this, this sacrament called communion, it's a lot more messy and a lot more relatable than a picture like this would let, uh, like let on, like let us believe. And so just for the next couple minutes, I'm going to summarize in this CSV version, which is the Connor summary version, um, John 13 and 14. Most of what I'm going to talk about here, if you want to just double check or read it for yourself, is found in John 13 or 14. But I'm going to summarize the story of the Last Supper for you. So just follow along because it's going to get interesting. It's about 24 to 36 hours before Jesus is going to be betrayed and crucified and suffer a horrific but atoning death on our behalf. But before Jesus does, one of the things that he wants to do is have dinner with his disciples one last time. And we're going to go back to that because that's very important here in a minute. But Jesus is being kind of cryptic. Like all the way leading up to this moment, he's headed to Jerusalem, and he's like making these little statements insinuating that he's going to be murdered soon. Um, and I don't know if you've ever had a friend that's like, oh, man, I'm about to die. You're just like, wait, I'm sorry, what? Like, do you, do you, have a, do you like live with somebody? Like, do I need to call somebody? Like, are you okay? Like, Jesus is kind of acting like, like semi-suicidal here. Like he's saying that like, I'm going to die. You guys don't understand. I'm going to leave you. He's acting very cryptic. They notice that Jesus isn't really acting like himself. So this big festival dinner kicks off and things get weird automatically. Jesus stands up, takes out off his outer garment, wraps it around his waist, and starts to wash his disciples' feet. Now, that practice wasn't necessarily uncommon, but for your leader to do it, your rabbi to do it, was unheard of. 
Think of it like this. If you are coming into young adults and Andrew and Zach are standing in the front with their shirts off, tied around their waist, (laughs) putting hand sanitizer on your hands and then drying them with their shirt. Pretty weird, right? You probably wouldn't come back after that. Like, there are these two shirtless guys rubbing hand sanitizer on me. I don't know how I felt about it. (laughs) That's weird. Like, that kicks off the night pretty weird. But Jesus sits down. And dinner's starting to be passed around. And and it feels like almost just out of this like tension or agony or this like anticipation of what's about to happen. Jesus just like blurts out. He's like, hey, somebody here is actually about to betray me. Somebody sitting at this table is going to betray me. Think about the tension that creates with the people sitting at the table. The Bible actually says that they start to whisper to one another, like, what is he talking about? Like, somebody's going to betray him. Jesus, we're not going to betray you. Like, we've we've seen you do all these miracles. You probably strike us down with lightning or something like that. Like, we're not going to turn our back on you. But Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Somebody at this table is going to betray me. And I feel like that moment is so much more tense than just to like, like a whitewash, like Jesus, just like sitting there like that. You know what I mean? So Jesus talks about somebody's going to betray him, and then they have no idea what he's talking about. So John, he, he, the one who Jesus loves, who, who writes this letter, which is ironic, he references himself like that. But um, he leans over and he's like, Jesus, what are you talking about? And Jesus is like, all right, I've got some bread. I'm going to take some bread and I'm going to dip it in whatever dip was Jesus's choice for the night. Um, he's going to give a little swirl. And then he says, whoever I hand this bread to is going to be the one that betrays me. Now, I don't know what conversation Judas was having at the time, and I don't know what was going on at the table, but if I am Judas in this moment, there is not much you can do to make me take the piece of bread that Jesus just dipped and is trying to hand to me. I'm like, Peter, that's for you. Yeah, your favorite dip. You were talking about it. Jesus, Peter was, he loves hummus. He, you know, he talks about it all the time. Like, I don't know. Whatever Judas was doing, he wasn't paying attention at a very critical moment in the story. And he takes the bread, but apparently things don't click because it says that even after this happens, Judas gets up to leave and the disciples are like, where is he he going? I guess he's going to like take money to the poor. Judas was in charge of the money. And so they thought like, okay, money guy, going to go do some nice things like while we're finishing up dinner. Like couldn't be more wrong. Pay attention next time. Like, but so... This all happens. Dinner's continuing. And after this, Jesus starts to take the bread and the wine and explain the symbolic nature of communion. He talks about how you're going to take bread and break it and eat it, and this is my body. Okay, that's a little weird. Then you're going to take wine and you're going to drink it, and that represents my blood. You need to eat my body and drink my blood. And I feel like I don't know, just without the proper context, like we, we think that's like very holy, very religious, but like that can sound very strange to a lot of people. There's even a story where the Pharisees are like, he, he talks about this and like, what, what is he talking about? Like, this is disgusting. We're not going to eat this guy. Like, what is going on? And a- after he like, like, after he explains like communion, he then looks at Peter. Picture this. Talk about a tense moment. Jesus looks at Peter and he goes, hey, Peter. Satan, like the enemy of the world, enemy of your soul, Satan, has been trying to sift you like wheat. He's coming after you. Satan knows who you are. The devil, like the horn guy, like not like a demon. The leader of them all is like coming after you to sift you. And I've been praying for you. If I'm Peter, I'm just like, this just got heavy. Like this just got like, 
I don't know, like, I feel like the ring girl is going to, like, pop up or something in the back. Like, the devil is trying to sift you, Peter. And he's like, oh, my gosh. The TV turns, like, these screens turn staticky. You guys are like, what's happening? <laughs> Sorry. <sighs> but then, like, they continue the conversation, and, and, and Peter kind of gets to the fact that he's like, hey, you're about to be, like, tempted. You're going to leave me. And Peter makes this bold declaration. He's like, Jesus, I would never leave you. I'm gonna go, I would go to prison for you. No, you know what? Better yet, I'm going to die for you. And Jesus at the table in front of everybody is like, no, not only are you not going to die for me, you're going to deny knowing me here in just a few short hours. You're going to act like you have no idea who I am. That doesn't feel like that picture that we just looked at. That feels heavy. That feels awkward. That's full of tension. And so after this, Jesus is kind of continuing his teaching. And get this, no lie, this would only happen in a room of like 12 or 13 guys. Luke records that there was actually a discussion going on during all of this holiness that's happening of the disciples on who is the greatest disciple. Think about that. Luke literally is like a discussion breaks out on who is the greatest disciple. They all start arguing. That is the broest thing that has ever happened at a dinner like that. Peter's definitely not. He's weak. He can't even bench anything, you know? Like, what a weird argument to get in. Like, who's, who's the best disciple? <laughs> like, so weird. But then Jesus continues his teaching, and he starts to get cryptic again, and he starts to say, hey, I'm about to leave all you guys. And where I'm going, you cannot go. But don't worry. You, you're going to come eventually. You'll know where it's at. I'm leaving you. You can't come. I'm being very vague about where I'm going. But don't worry, you'll figure it out. And so Thomas speaks up. And Thomas gets a bad rep. He deserves it sometimes, but he kind of says the thing that's on everybody's mind, I'm sure, when Jesus is saying this. He's saying, Jesus, awesome that you're leaving. Where is this very vague place that you're going to that we cannot go to, but we know the way to go? Like, can you be a little more clear with us on what is happening. And Philip chimes in. Philip never gets any shine, but here's his moment. He, he chimes in and he's like, yeah, Jesus, while you're at it, I don't know why I picture Philip is like, y'all seen Space Jam, the little green alien or whatever that like talks really fast. I just picture Philip in this moment like, yeah, Jesus, as a matter of fact, I'm thinking about like, hey, while you're being really vague about this place, he goes, why don't you just show us the father? Why in all of this, why don't you just show us God? Why don't you just show us the Father and then we'll believe? And I just picture Jesus in this moment. He's like, awesome, guys, Thomas, uh, Judas, Philip, cool. All the miracles, all the teachings, all the healings I've done. Apparently that's, that's not enough for you guys. Like, all of this is happening during this romanticized holy moment, this romanticized holy dinner. And all of this might sound funny, and I've done my best to sort of draw out maybe the awkwardness or the tension or whatever, but think about this. This is the real Last Supper. This is the real Last Supper, not some stoic dry, hyper-religious painting. It's real people with real questions and real doubt and real confusion and real betrayal sitting and eating a final meal with Jesus. And I don't know why, but as I was reading this and as I was studying this, as I was reading the final moments of Jesus' life, I just started to think, like, is this how I would want to spend my final moments on earth? 
at a dinner, at a dysfunctional dinner with a bunch of my friends? Is this how I would want to spend my last moments, my last 24 to 48 hours here on earth? I mean, what about you? Think about it. How would you want to spend your last day or two on earth? I know for me, I love my friends. I have some of the best friends in the world, but I would want to spend time with my wife. I would want to spend time with my daughter. If I'm being honest, I'd want to go to the beach and probably have some cocktails. Virgin, of course, but um, I would want to go to the beach and go surfing and play with my daughter in the sand and go out to dinner with my wife and spend, you know, like a couple more moments with her. I would, I would want to do something out of the ordinary, right? Like I'd want to go to Hawaii or I'd want to go to uh, Cabo or wherever, who knows? Like I would just want to get somewhere out of my normal routine and I would want my final moments to be this, this tension of me getting the most that I can out of life before it's gone. If you knew that you had just final moments, a few days, how would you want to spend them? Because I think it speaks volumes to us. The way that Jesus spent his final moments here on earth. I think the way that Jesus spent his final moments should speak volumes to your soul about who God is and his passion and his love for you. Because think about this. Jesus could literally do anything. Jesus is God. No limits, nothing, no restrictions, nothing off limits. Jesus could do whatever he wanted to do in his final moments. And as I was thinking, I was like, if I was Jesus, what would I do? And, and what came to my mind is like, there has to be at least one more miracle that would convince more people that I am who I say I am, right? There has to be one more miracle I could perform. There, there, there has to be one more healing that I could do that would show people that I am who I say I am and that I could convince people. There has to be one more teaching I could give that would just convince the world to follow me and that life with me is better. There just has to be one more thing that I could do. Or if I'm being honest, if, if I was Jesus and feeling selfish, I would be like, maybe just once in my whole ministry, instead of people trying to kill me and plot to, to destroy me, like maybe it would just be nice to be recognized or acknowledged for how freaking awesome I've been over the past couple years. Maybe it would be nice for somebody to throw me a party or, or give me a platform or recognize me or just let me know that my life mattered or that it was important. Maybe it'd be nice for all the people I healed in those villages to come and thank me and tell me how much their life has changed. Like, man, if I was Jesus, that's kind of where my head was at. But the real Jesus, thank the Lord, on the night he was betrayed, decided to sit down and have dinner with his disciples. People full of doubt and question and arguing and betrayal, to not make the moment about him, but in his final moments, to make it about loving and caring for other people. What does that say about our God? What does that tell you? What does that reveal to us, this moment, Jesus at a table with his followers, with his disciples? What does that tell us about God's heart for humanity? The very night he would be betrayed, he would be tortured, he would be killed. His greatest priority in that moment would be to have a dinner with people that he loves. That should speak volumes to you about how deeply God cares about you, how unreasonably passionate. 
must the love of God be to prioritize a dinner with people at the table who in just moments, in just hours, would betray him, would abandon him in his darkest moment and would deny ever knowing his name. But he chooses to sit down at a table and have dinner with these people. It's the, it's the love that only a God can have for his creation. It's the kind of love, the kind of intentionality that would choose a moment for, for a Savior to have with people that he loves. It's only the love of Jesus that would choose in his final moments on this planet to sit down and have dinner with broken and hurting people. In his final moments, what Jesus chooses to do should speak volumes to you about his heart towards you. But it's not just what Jesus has chosen to do. It's the people that he's chosen to do it with. Think about this for a minute. The people that Jesus chooses to be with in his final moments. We know these men as the 12 disciples, and they're amazing men. They'll go on to change the world, to turn the Mediterranean and the globe upside down with the good news of Jesus Christ. They are amazing men, but these men are equally as damaged and hurt and broken and in need of a Savior that I am standing before you here right now. And just like you and me, these men have questions, they have doubts, they have fears, they have anxiety. And all of that, all, with all of that packaged up, they are still invited to come and sit at the table of Jesus. I think of Nathaniel, some call him Bartholomew. Um, in one of the Gospels, he meets Jesus. His brother runs up and he's like, hey, we found the Messiah. And Nathaniel says, he, uh, his brother says, he's come from Nazareth. And, and Nathaniel says, Nazareth? What good can come out of Nazareth? A man sitting at Jesus' table in his final moments doubted the validity of Jesus upon first meeting him. Think of these people sitting at this table. I think of Philip, who after spending three years hearing Jesus' teachings and seeing miracles, still asked Jesus to show him the Father so that he would have enough proof to believe. Seated at the table of Jesus. I think about Thomas, who after the resurrection of Jesus would go on to doubt the news that he was alive, that women would see the tomb, would see angels, would see an empty grave, and would run and tell the disciples of the good news that Jesus is who he says he is and did exactly what he said he would do. And Thomas still would not believe until he put his fingers into the holes of the hands of Jesus and touched his side to believe that Jesus was in fact alive, not a ghost, not a spirit, but physically resurrected from the dead like he said he would. Thomas was at the table of Jesus. I think about Peter who after boldly proclaiming that he would never leave or abandon Jesus, would go on that same night to sit by a bonfire in eye view, watching Jesus be questioned and tortured and denying that he ever knew the man's name three times. I think about Judas. Think about Judas for a minute. He walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, learned from Jesus. He saw the kids run up to Jesus. He ate the bread that was broken and multiplied on the hillside. He saw the fish just continue to keep on coming out of the basket. He saw paralyzed people get up and walk. He saw blind people see. He saw deaf people hear. Judas is at the table with Jesus. And later that night, he goes on to betray Jesus for a bag of coins. These were the men 
that Jesus decided to share his final meal with. These were the kind of people. These were the people that Jesus decided to establish the new covenant of grace with, with the symbolism of communion. These were the people that Jesus wanted to remember his sacrifice that was about to take place with the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine. These are the people Jesus wanted at his table to do communion with him, to share his final moments with. These are the type of people. In a moment, we're about to take communion together. But I want to reread Paul's instructions about communion to the church before we do. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says this, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took, took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat and drink of the cup. Y'all can begin to open your, we're going to take it all together here in a minute, so hold off. But when I was a kid, and I'm not lying about this, I distinctly remember when I was a child, communion terrified me. Communion, I always felt so anxious and so nervous whenever they passed communion around because of these verses that say, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That just like did something to me because I knew in my heart and in my mind the reality of my situation. I knew who I was in the church and I knew who I was outside of the church. I knew who I was around my friend group and I knew who I was around my parents. I knew who I was with my family and I knew who I was at school. I knew that if there was anybody who had a life that was considered unworthy of taking the bread and the wine and, and commemorating the sacrifice of Jesus, it would be me. I used to feel so afraid and I used to feel so disqualified when communion would be passed around because I was convinced that if I lived my life in the day and age of Jesus, there would be no way that there would be a seat for me at his table. But as I was studying and I was reading about this, I felt the Holy Spirit just speak to me and say, Connor, if there is a seat for them, there's a seat for you. And I feel like the Holy Spirit is speaking to some of you tonight saying that if there was a seat for Peter, man, there's a seat for you. If there was a seat for Philip with his doubts after walking with Jesus for years, there's a seat for you. If there's a seat for Thomas who would doubt the resurrection of Jesus after spending time and seeing miracles, there's a seat for you. If there was a seat for Judas, who would betray Jesus and sell him out to be brutally murdered. Can I tell you, there is a seat for you. Because when I look at that picture, when I look at the communion table, when I look at the Last Supper, I see myself represented in every broken person sitting around the one central figure that can change everything, Jesus Christ. And so as, as a kid, when I would read these verses and it would say, if anybody is, uh, if you take it in an unworthy way, you're going to drink judgment on yourself. And I was like, I will not do that. And so there would be moments literally where I would take it, pretend and put it in my pocket and throw it away as I left because I knew I was unworthy. But can I tell you, when you take communion, 
What makes you worthy is not that you live a perfect life. It is not that you never doubt or have questions. It is only because Jesus Christ gave his life for you to be clean, to be seen the way that God sees Jesus. It's now how he sees you. The only reason you have a seat at the table is because of what God has done for you. So would you stand with me? We're going to take communion together as a family. I'm going to read these verses and kind of instruct us as we do this. But would you just remember that it's only because of Jesus that you have a seat at his table. But every single person in this room has a seat. Man, as I was practicing and as I was praying about this, if I'm being kind of honest, I've, I've been a little distracted up here because I feel like there's this voice. I feel like the Holy Spirit's just been speaking to me. And there's maybe people, but I know that there's somebody in this room and the word that the Spirit gave me is that you are lonely. Denver was just rated one of the number one most lonely cities in the nation for people in our age group, college age to early 30s. There's somebody in this room that is lonely. And if I'm being honest, if I can just be real, I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, there's somebody in this room that's considered taking their life because they feel so alone. Man, can I just tell you, there's a seat at the table for you. There's a seat at the table of Jesus for you. And it's not a guilt, it's not like a guilty thing. It's not a shame thing. You are welcome to sit at the table of God. He has prepared a way for you. He knows your name. He knows your season. He knows your situation. He knows where you live. He knows what you think. And he loves you more passionately than you could ever imagine. If you are in this room and you feel alone, can I tell you that there is a seat for you at Jesus' table? I just pray right now in the, Holy, the name of the Holy Spirit that this, this spirit of loneliness and depression would leave this room. That the spirit of suicide, that people are contemplating taking their own life. No, would you realize that you are accepted as you are? That Jesus paid an ultimate price for you. That you are valuable. That you are worthy. That you have purpose. That you have meaning. That God intentionally wove you together before you were ever created. You are here, not on the act of a man and a woman coming together, but because the God of the universe, before creation was laid out, knew who you were and spoke you into existence and has a plan and a purpose for your life. Do not give up. Do not give up hope. There is a seat now and forever at the table of our God and he is welcoming you with open arms to be a part of his family. If that's you, just know we are here for you and we love you. And we are so grateful that you came with us tonight. Sorry, I just had to say that. It's all I've been thinking about this entire time. Would you take your little communion cup? They had this at the Last Supper. That's why we do. They had the little plastic thing. It's official. Would you do me a favor? Would you take out this wafer? And uh, I'm going to read the scripture, and I want to ask you to do something before you eat it. It says this. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. Excuse me. <clears throat> this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Before you eat this, would you do me a favor? I don't know if this is like a, a traditional Christian thing or not, but I used to always do this as a kid. Would you just break this in your hand real quick before you eat it? And would you just remember that literally Jesus was broken, not just crucified, but beaten and stabbed and whipped with thorns crushed down on his head 
He was broken so that you don't have to be, but so you can be healed. Can we take this together? Would you take your cup? In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Whenever you drink in remembrance of me, forever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Before you drink, real quick, this right here is symbolic. It represents precious, holy blood. Think about this. The blood of God himself shed on a cross so that you and I can have a perfect, right relationship with him. No barriers, nothing holding you back, nothing you have to hide from, nothing you have to be ashamed of. This represents what Jesus poured out so that you can be healed. Before we take this, can we just take 10 seconds and thank God? Would you just lift up your voice and thank Jesus for the price that he paid? Would you just thank him that you have the ability to turn from your ways, to repent of your sin and to follow him? And to say, Jesus, we remember you and we thank you for what you did on our behalf. Will you drink this with me? Jesus, what an honor it is to stand and remember you with my friends and my family. What an honor it is, Jesus, that we would get to participate in communion together. To recognize in the moments before you willingly gave your life for us. We could just partake in remembering the broken body and the blood that you shed so that we could be free and that we could know you and we could experience joy and peace and acceptance. God, would you just constantly remind our souls that there is always a seat for us at your table. We love you so much, Jesus. We cannot wait to worship you. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. And everybody said, amen.